Are we on now? There we go. Uh, so Dr. Cruz disappeared down those stairs. I think he doesn't like the spotlight, but I think I would like to extend a personal congratulations. And one more time, let's so loud that he can hear us from downstairs. Way to go, Dr. Cruz. I know it's been a couple of weeks, but I can't tell you uh, how joyful and how grateful I am that we get to be together in chapel together. Um, it's been a year and a half, and what a sweet blessing it's been uh, since school started. Um, <clears throat> that has been a sweet blessing, and I personally have been in kind of an interesting place um, as a dad. My youngest daughter uh, is currently a freshman in college, and she is, um, yeah, <laughs> uh, She's in, she's in California, though. So, yeah, you can woo for that one. Um, but she is. She's far away. So my wife and I are, are experiencing an empty home for the first time. And to be honest, it's been, uh, it's been really sad and really good. Um, it's a healthy thing, but, but there's deep sorrow that goes along with that transition in life. Um, I miss her. Uh, I miss her a lot. And... Uh, she's not in her bedroom, and all of the things that become a part of your daily life shift. Um, there's also the reality that there's a major uh, chapter of my life and my wife's life that have shifted. Um, we'll no longer be parents to young children living in our home. And as I've been sort of working through that and wrestling through that and, and praying about it, it's very interesting that I've been calling out to the Lord for, for mercy. And that's something that... that is a little interesting because it's so particular and so specific and not something that I regularly pray for. You know, when pray Psalm 51, oh, Lord, have mercy on me out of uh, the abundance of your steadfast love when it's talking about particular sin. But in this instance where my daughter's gone and I'm just kind of hurting, um, I've been crying out for mercy. And it sort of uh, set me on this, this path uh, really the last week um, looking at mercy in scripture. So what I'd like to do is talk about mercy and going to do it in kind of an interesting way. We're going to start off and we're going we're to go back to the beginning because as we look at the heart of our living God, we see that his heart is consistent and that his heart is the same from the beginning of scripture to the end of scripture through all of creation um, and salvation history. But he reveals it to us at different times and in different ways, but there's such beautiful and deep consistency. So let us pray and we'll jump in. Uh, Father, thank you that you are a merciful and gracious God. And thank you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us. Please, Lord, by the power of your spirit, will you be with us and speak to our hearts this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are going to start in the Garden of Eden. We're going to start with creation, where God has created Adam and Eve in his image. They are image bearers. And he's placed them in the garden. And he's called them to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. And you have this picture of Adam and Eve procreating, having family. And that family then begins to spread and it expands and widens the Garden of Eden, literally. And it begins to cover the earth. And as it expands, they carry the name and the glory of God over the face of the earth. They're in perfect communion with him. There's no sin. There's no fallenness. There's no suffering. There's no brokenness. But before uh, Eve is actually created, 
When Adam is placed in the garden, God gives him a particular command, how he is to have dominion over this creation that he's placing him in. And he say, it says, the Lord God commanded the man, you are, uh, oh, go back, um, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. So as part of their, their image bearerness, as part of their dominion over the world, um, they are to work the garden and take care of it. Literally, the, the Hebrew there is to till it, um, to reap the, the fruits of their tilling and to guard it. And guard there is the same word that's used throughout the Old Testament for the priests who are to guard the tabernacle, to guard the holy place from anything coming in that is unholy. It's an important part of our story as we move forward. And we also add a little bit of specific detail on this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What do we know about it? We know one thing, and it's this. If Adam and Eve eat of it, they will die. Now, allow that to sort of set the stage for what happens next. Uh, the serpent, the deceiver, enters the garden and approaches Eve and asks her a question. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And Eve responds, um, and she actually adds a little bit. Well, he said we can eat, but we're not even allowed to touch a tree. He, she adds a degree of severity to God's command. And then Satan says something super interesting. You, you will surely not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan says to the woman, says to Eve, here's the truth. God doesn't want you to eat because if you do, your eyes are going to be opened and you're going to be like him. You'll know the difference between good and evil. And Satan is painting God as being deceitful, deceiving them out of his own jealousy. And he's painting himself as truthful and as caring for them. But we know Satan's nature. Uh, John 8 talks about it, that Satan was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And it brings up an important point, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Satan has spoken about it specifically here. And I ask you a question. What happens if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Will their eyes actually be opened? Will they be like God? Will they know the difference between good and evil? No. That's what the deceiver tells her about the tree. What we know is simply what God has said, that if they eat of it, they will die. Plus, the tree doesn't bring the knowledge of good and evil. They already know what is good and what is evil. God is good. God's commands are good. Anything that contradicts the commands of God is evil. The name of the tree of knowledge of good, of good and evil, it's not something that they are supposed to acquire. They already know good and evil. God is good and that which stands against God is evil. It's not knowledge that they're going to gain, but it's a place where they're supposed to put their knowledge into action. This is a tree of judgment where they were to exercise their knowledge of good and evil, to guard the garden as God called them to do, the garden sanctuary, from the unholy deceiver. That is what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was about. <clears throat> but when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good and pleasing to the eye, she eats, she gives to Adam, and Adam eats. And scripture says that the eyes of both of them were opened 
But do they become like God? No. They don't become like God. Instead, they see their nakedness and sin before God. They knew good and evil. Now they have participated in evil and sin, and they are guilty, and they are ashamed, and they have fractured their relationship with God and with each other. Now that all sets the context for what's about to happen. And this is where I want us to start to plug in and hear this really carefully. What happens when God comes? So in verse 8, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? All right, so set this up. This is not kind of an old man Mark Twain God walking in the, in the garden uh, uh, looking for Adam and Eve. Instead, you have something very specific happening here. And it harkens much more to, it, to, to Sinai, to the visions of Ezekiel, to pictures of God coming in a theophanic presence, God's very presence in a theophanic glory cloud. But here, here's what's happening. The, the translation of this is super, super ancient, taken from ancient uh, translations. And, but it, a better reading of this is they heard the sound of the Lord God. And that, that word there used for sound is actually also used for thunder. Walking is going back and forth. And then, and this is kind of the cool piece, in the cool of the day, in the ruach, most, some of you have taken Hebrew know what ruach means. It can mean wind, spirit. And then you get yom. And yom is a, 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 a sister word to umu in Akkadian, which means storm. And you get this picture that is more like this. The man and his wife heard the thunder of the Lord God going back and forth in the garden in the wind of the storm. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. God is not coming into the garden wondering what on earth has happened. God is coming in theophanic presence and judgment because they have sinned against his holiness. They have disobeyed his command and they have not carried out the judgment at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they were supposed to. You see what's happening? They've sinned against God and a holy God comes in judgment on their sin. They hide in the trees because they know that they are about to die because that is the curse that God said was going to happen. The man answers, he says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Lord said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman blames it on the serpent who deceived me and I ate. So the covenant is broken. And when a covenant is broken, curses come. And the curse here is death. And that sets the stage for God's judgment. But it sets the stage for the miraculous mercy that's about to flow from God. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And if you ever want to chat about this, come by my office because I think this is actually the fall of Satan. But this is the peace. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his eel. Enmity between your offspring and hers. Now, if you imagine Adam and Eve sit standing in the garden, hiding from God, and God is going to cast judgment first on the serpent. And here's what he says to the serpent. You are cursed. 
Here's what your curse will look like. But I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. Ears go open. Your offspring and hers? Are we going to have offspring? Are we not going to be put to death right now? What's happening? He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Good news. Good news indeed. This is the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. The picture that we have of the future hope that will come. One man in the line of the woman will crush the head of the serpent while he also strikes the heel and delivers a death blow. But the death blow to the man who crushes the serpent's head is the blow that will actually bring life. In their curses, they learn that they're going to become parents. They're going to remain married. God extends to them mercy in judgment because he loves them. He offers future hope. He offers current provision as he clothes them. And he offers protection in keeping them from eating from the tree of life in their fallen state. Now, don't gloss over, don't gloss over the magnitude of that mercy. They rightly deserved death. They believed Satan calling God's character and goodness into question. They thought God was being deceitful and holding out on them. So they disobey him. And God comes in judgment, in a glory cloud of judgment, and instead of pronouncing the curse they know they deserve, he says, in my love, I'm going to provide the solution way down the road, but you're going to live and you're going to have family. Now, a bit about mercy. To look on someone with love is compassion. And we hear throughout the Gospels the compassion of Jesus, how he looks on people and has compassion on them. But the action that is associated with compassion is mercy. Mercy is action that is born out of love. Now, it's typically connected to forgiveness. It's typically connected to withholding punishment that someone deserves. And we see that in the garden. But God's mercy is much larger and greater than that. It is action born of love for people who need him in the depths of their fallenness. It is his heart to act out of love and to bring mercy to his children. There's a, uh, uh, an encounter in Matthew chapter 9 where Jesus is at the house of, um, of Matthew, the tax collector, and he's eating with tax collectors, and he's eating with sinners, and he's eating publicly with them. And the Pharisees come, and, and the Pharisees, remember, they're not bad guys. The Pharisees are not the bad guys. The Pharisees were the respected leaders of the law. They were the ones who would help the Israelites keep the law faithfully as they had interpreted it from the Old Testament. Now, granted, there were 600 and I think 613 some odd laws that they had to be obedient to. But one of those was eating publicly with sinners. So when they asked the question of Jesus, they asked his, his followers, how is he eating with these sinners? It's clearly against the law. He's breaking the commands of God. But Jesus hears it and he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. And then he quotes from Hosea chapter six. And he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I have come to call the righteous. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. God's heart is not transactional. It is not simply about obeying certain rules. 
It is relational. If you preserve the shell of worship while missing the heart of worship, you miss the whole thing. It is necessary to understand the heart of God to follow God with your whole heart. Because when you understand his heart, you can give yours to him. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I'll give you rest. We've looked at that the last couple of weeks. But, but hear this, I've come to you who I labor and am burdened for, and I bring mercy because I love you and you are my children. Now that kind of mercy that we see in the garden, we see extended throughout the scriptures, is the most profound and the most beautiful in the ministry of Jesus. His compassion that gets exercised in mercy is truly staggering. There are instances in the gospels where Jesus encounters someone and we have the expectation of judgment, right? We talked about one a couple of weeks ago, the woman with the issue of blood who comes in, she's ceremonially unclean. She's supposed to announce herself in a group so that people don't touch her and become ceremonially and ritually unclean. But she slides through the people and she touches the rabbi, which would have made him unclean. And he turns and you expect, she would, I think, have expected judgment, but instead, what does he say to her? Oh, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. He offers her peace. Um, a woman caught in, in adultery in John chapter eight, she's used by the teachers of the law and the Pharisees to trip Jesus up. And what does Jesus say to her? Condemnation? No. He says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Mercy, where judgment was the expectation. But then we also see his mercy apart from judgment. We see him look on people with compassion and heal them. He sees the crowds as they bring their sick in. He has compassion and he extends mercy to, to, uh, to them as he heals them. There was a, uh, one case where um, uh, a father came and his son was having horrible seizures, causing him to fall into fires. And, um, and he says, Lord, have mercy on me. And Jesus heals his son. That is the heart of God being extended compassion into mercy. It's who Jesus is. And that mercy that we see throughout the gospels, throughout the life of Jesus, comes into the deepest clarity on the cross. When Jesus is on the cross, we're told a number of things about the people who are there witnessing, watching, and participating. In Luke 23, it says that they crucified him along with two criminals. And as he was crucified, people stood watching. The rulers sneered at him. The soldiers came up and mocked him. So as he's hanging on the cross, being watched, mocked, and sneered at, here's what his heart overflows in. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. John talks about this later, First John. God is love, and that's what overflows from his heart. There are also two criminals that are hung there next to him. One of the criminals hurls insults at Jesus. The other rebukes that man and asks Jesus to remember him when he comes his, into his kingdom. The son of God, hanging on the cross, about to commit his spirit to the father and die, 
has mercy on that man. And he says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. In his anguish, he continued to love those who called out to him. And just remember, when we're talking about this, when we're talking about Jesus on the cross, it was the most horrific torture that was available in the ancient world. It was gruesome and brutal and painful and eventually you suffocated to death because your body, the weight of your body pulled your body down so much that you couldn't breathe. So as Jesus is dying, as he's gasping, as he's pressing himself up on the cross so that he can actually inhale and take air into his lungs, he's still not thinking of himself. He's extending mercy to those around him. Guys, that's the heart of God. Not long after that, he committed his spirit into the Father's hands, and he did die. Now, the parallels here, what I like to do is do a little uh, bookend thing. Um, The parallels deepen our assurance that this is, and it always has been, and it always will be the heart of God. Adam and Eve hid from God among the trees, and Jesus was exposed before God on a tree. God came in judgment of sin with Adam and Eve, and God came in judgment of sin with Jesus. The judgment that he pronounced on Adam and Eve was so, so deeply rich in mercy. Jesus took the full judgment of of God for our sin and continued to extend mercy so that in death and in his resurrection, he might extend to us the mercy of grace, that we might be reconciled to the Father, that we might have the gift of the Holy Spirit that makes us alive and makes us new creations, that we might once again fellowship with the triune God. Now, I mentioned um, it's kind of a hard time right now for me personally. Um, My daughter leaving, I've been praying. It's so odd that I've been praying for mercy. It's almost like my spirit, my, my soul, my heart kind of knew intuitively to pray for. And I trust that that's the spirit of God guiding my prayers. But it is normal for us in the midst of struggle and in the midst of trial to desire that hardship to be taken away, to desire for the hardship to be actually removed from us. Lord, in your mercy, please take it away. Jesus prayed for that, remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's normal to wonder why would God allow suffering that would require mercy. But the answer to both sin and the answer to suffering is God's presence with us. Moses knew the importance of God's presence. He said, Lord, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us up from out of here. We can't go without you. Jesus came as Emmanuel, as God with us. The presence of God in the midst of suffering is better than the relief of suffering without his presence. Think of that. The presence of God with us in the midst of suffering is better than simply having the suffering removed if God is not presence with us. And in a fallen world, his presence with us in trial and sacrifice, it transforms us, it sanctifies us, it draws us to him. And we are in this great and amazing story. It began with perfection. Adam and Eve, sinless, 
in the presence of the living God, face to face with him. And then there's the fall, where separation from God takes place between mankind, but then the presence of suffering and fallenness and brokenness comes into the world. And then Jesus comes as Emmanuel, God with us, dying and sending Holy Spirit so that God is again with us intimately. But the suffering and the trial and the brokenness and the fallenness is still here. And we look forward today to the day when that will actually be done away with, the day of the new heavens and the new earth. But we should rejoice. We should rejoice that God gave us his intimate presence through the Holy Spirit first. That we might, with perseverance and patience and hope, look to the day that is coming. We will wait and we will anticipate. But while we do it, God has revealed his heart to us. We know the heart of our father. He is gentle, lowly, meek, humble, offering rest and peace and mercy. He desires to be with us because he loves us. And that is the motivator of the heart of God, love for his people and for his children. It's why we can cry out, have mercy on me, O God, according to your amazing, steadfast, remarkable, mind-blowing love. Have mercy on me. And he does. Amen? Let's pray. Our God and King, you are faithful and kind, merciful and gracious. Thank you that you are Emmanuel, God with us, and that your desire is that we be with you. Father, thank you for Jesus, for the forgiveness of sin, for his death and resurrection, for the sending of the Holy Spirit, that we might be made new creations. Father, help us to persevere by the power of your spirit as we struggle, as we walk through trials, and help us to have hope of the day that's to come the new heavens and the new earth where suffering will be done away with, where the only tears might be tears of joy, but no pain and no suffering, no trial, no struggle. We will see you as you truly are. Lord, be with us. Pray that we would draw near to you, that you might draw near to us. And we pray in Jesus' name.